Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study. Pastor Kirk Hall is continuing his expository teaching through the Roman Epistle. Our prayer is that God would use this time to help you continue to grow in your faith. Now let's open our Bibles as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truth to our hearts. Y'all go ahead, guys, if you would. Good to see all of you. Go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 12. And we are, again, looking at the practical part of Romans where we are learning how to live this Christian life that Jesus Christ purchased for us to live. Uh, we, We have received new life in Christ because of the grace of God. We've been empowered and gifted by the Spirit to live this life and to bring glory to God. We're going to look at... Uh, tonight in our study in chapter 12, verses 11 through 13, the first part of 13 there, we're going to be talking about Christian virtues. This will be the first part of this. We're going to talk about Christian virtues through the rest of this chapter and looking at what our lives ought to be characterized by, um, what the characteristics of a true Christian uh, life is or, or, should look like, and I pray that you understand this, that this is not optional. Um, he he is speaking to the church, and he is speaking in the imperative. He is telling us this is what we are to do because of the wonderful grace that we have received in Christ. This is how we're to live our lives. And so pay close attention to this. Um, again, we know this. We don't live this life so that we can earn salvation. We live this life because we have graciously received such a wonderful salvation. We live this life, we display these Christian virtues because of the change that Christ has brought in us. And and through the power of His Holy Spirit, we will see these things come to fruition in our Christian lives. So, as you look at these things, I want you to examine your own life and ask this question, do I possess these elements to some degree? Is God bringing these things to fruition in my life as a member of Christ's church. So, let's read together chapter 12, verse 11. Right where we left off. He ends 10 by telling us to honor one another above ourselves. And he says this, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, Patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. The last verse there is two parts. He's going to say share with God's people who are in need. And then he's going to say practice hospitality. We're not going to talk about practicing hospitality to the next time that we meet. We're going to stop there with the sharing part. And we're going to talk about what that means in just a moment. So there at 13 is where we're going to stop tonight. And so he breaks these things down very simplistically. In fact, we could probably just read this text and understand at least enough to say, okay, these are some things that I need to practice in my Christian life. I need to make sure these things are on display for the glory of God as I yield to the Holy Spirit. However, I'm going to do the best that I can to elaborate on these things so that we can have a clearer understanding of what they actually mean, what he's actually saying. So he starts off and he says, never be lacking in zeal. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. There in verse 11. Zeal 
and spiritual fervor in service to the Lord. Now, the Greek word for fervor there, because fervor is definitely not a word we use every day, it's zeo. And that word literally means to boil with heat. Uh, it is opposite of being lazy or apathetic or slothful or complacent in your Christian walk. It is literally boiling with heat. That is that spiritual fervor. Uh, we used to see people and encourage people to be on fire for Christ. What we were encouraging them to do and what we ought to encourage each other to do as brothers is to burn with that spiritual fervor. It is that fervent inward zeal and passion for Jesus Christ that I pray each of you have to some degree. Because I'm going to tell you this, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, you possess that zeal, that enthusiasm inside of you for the Lord. Now, whether you're yielding to the Holy Spirit or not, that's a matter of obedience in your personal life. I can't tell you if you're yielding to that. But if you're a believer, there is that fire that burns inside of you. It is that fervent boiling, that inward zeal, that passion for Christ. That's what Paul is talking about here. And we see the first point that he makes, enthusiasm in our service. We ought to be boiling with fervency and enthusiasm for Christ. Um, I, I pray this. I pray that when we meet together in these studies, meet together on Sunday mornings, when you're out in the workplace sharing your faith with other people, I pray that you are burning, boiling with that enthusiasm to present the Gospel, to live the Gospel, to bring glory to God. That's our purpose in Christ. What an exciting purpose that is. We know this. There's enough dead, boring, dry religion going around. Uh, Paul's saying don't be like that. Be enthusiastic in your service. The first trait or virtue that we're looking at tonight as we examine these things closely is that enthusiasm in serving the Lord. I, I thank God for this. Because I, I believe here at Key Life, we get to see that over and over again. People's enthusiasm to serve the Lord. They're excited about Christ. Um, one reason I believe they're excited about Christ is because everything that we try to do, everything that we say, we point to Christ because He's our only hope. He's the only reason that we ought to be excited. And I can tell you this, I've been to those churches where they're just excited about being excited. He's not talking about just being excited about being excited. Right? That's the charismatic movie. They're excited about something, but we don't know what they're excited about. They're just excited. He's not talking about that kind of strange fire. He's talking about a boiling passion for Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. That inward, fervent, enthusiastic spirit that accompanies the believer. So it's that inward zeal and passion for Christ, but it's also that inward zeal and passion for others. He says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. We know our service to the Lord is not only to the Lord. We also know in serving the Lord, we serve others. I, I reminded you before we started 11 where he left off there in 10, he told us, honor one another above yourselves. That, that is the Christian life. To serve and to honor the Lord and to serve and to honor others to bring glory to the Lord. He's talking about enthusiastic service for God in the form of our service literally to God and our service to others in the name of God. He uses that word fervor. 
that boiling over. I want you to examine your life tonight. Are you boiling? Are you boiling with excitement and enthusiasm? Not, not for church. Not for the fellowship that we have. These things are good. But are you boiling in your service to Christ and to others as you bring God glory in your life? There's going to be a lot of self-examining that goes on in this study tonight. I pray that you would do that. That you would really examine where you are in regard to these virtues. This enthusiasm, of course, fueled by the Holy Spirit's fire inside of us. I'm thankful for that fire. It is that fire that is constantly burning inside of me. Even when my flesh is weak, even when I'm tired, even when I'm worn out, aren't you thankful for the fire of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that that gives us that drive to persevere and to keep on keeping on for the glory of God, for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So we see that this enthusiasm is fueled by the Spirit's fire. But it's also focused on serving. Again, serving the Lord first and foremost. That is our duty, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. It says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I had a football coach in high school. Before every single football game, he would remind us of Colossians 3.17. That whatever we do, whether word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, through Him. It is a focus on serving the Lord in every aspect of our life. and Knowing that it is about Him. I can tell you this. If you're not enthusiastic about Christ, you need to see what the problem is in your life. If you're not excited when other people come to Christ, if you don't rejoice when that happens, you need to check and see what's spiritually wrong with you. You need to check and see if you're spiritually alive first. But then you need to see what's going on in your life where you can't be excited when someone's rescued from the pits of hell as you once were because of the grace of God. We ought to be excited about those things. We ought to be excited about coming to worship together on the Lord's Day every week and to proclaim the glorious Savior that we have. We ought to be excited when we have the opportunities to serve Him, whether at this church, whether in the community, through serving Him, through serving others. There ought to be that focus on that service. Again, service to God, service to others. Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us about that. He said, each one of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Is there a fire inside of you toward the interest of other people? I'm thankful that Jesus had a burning passion and zeal for others. Because I'm one of those others that He came to rescue through His sacrifice, because He had that zeal for the Father. He had that zeal for doing the Lord's will and laying His life down as a servant for those of us who didn't deserve anything. He became a servant and humbled Himself, even humbling Himself by dying on a cross in our place. He's our model. He's our example. Paul is reminding us of that, our enthusiasm in our service. And so ask yourself that question, is your life marked with enthusiasm and service to Christ? Is it? I believe Paul is challenging the Roman church here to examine themselves. I believe today he's challenging the American church who's listening right here in this room to examine ourselves. Some of you guys, it's deer season. You can't sleep because you've seen a buck on a camera. Ask yourself, am I that excited 
about the Lord? Am I that boiling for the things of God? Or am I more excited about the idols in my life? The, the fish that I caught, the, the golf score that I, I, whatever you do in golf, shot, made. I'm not sure. Tyler, what do you do? You shot it? Yeah, you shot it. I don't, I don't know whatever it is you like, but I'm saying this. As Christians, as believers, our number one passion and drive in our life, our fire ought to be for the things of God. To serve the Lord and to serve others. And He has called us to do that. Paul's reminding us of that there in verse 11. So we see enthusiasm in service. Second thing that we see in verse 12 is it starts off, it says, be joyful in hope. Be joyful in hope. You see here, this is joy in salvation. He's talking about the hope that we have in Christ. Joyful in hope. It is the hope of salvation that causes us to have joy in the midst of every circumstance in our life. Now, how many of you understand, Jesus Christ never promised us a smooth and easy life. But He does offer us joy in the midst of a difficult life. I'm thankful for that. So he's talking about that joy that we have because of the hope of salvation. Are you exercising that in your life? Are you walking in that? This is through the hope that we received by faith. Hope that we received by faith. And in Romans, when we were back in chapter 8, hopefully you remember back that far, but in verse 24, it says this, it says, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. How many of you know the ultimate end of our salvation has not yet happened? Right? Glorification has not yet happened. We are not repaired to the estate that we are going to be repaired to when we are made fully righteous in the eyes of God. We're not there yet. Salvation has not been complete as far as we are concerned. Now, in the plan of God, it's done. It's taken care of. It was done in eternity past. But we have hope that we look forward to by what? Faith. He's saying and He's reminding us of this, that faith that carries us along builds in us great hope, which builds in us great joy. This, this is through the hope we received by faith when we received Christ. This is our unseen guarantee of the redemption that Christ has already secured for us. Anybody thankful for that? Though we have not seen final redemption, we know by faith, the Spirit bears witness to it, the Word bears witness to it, we know by faith that we are guaranteed this hope which is to come, and that should cause us to rejoice in the salvation that Christ paid for us to have, to live a life that shows that kind of joy because of that unseen guarantee of redemption in Christ. That unseen guarantee, we know this, is guaranteed by the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, we go back there, of course. Verse 13, it says this, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. He's saying there is a further glorious redemption that is going to take place that you have access by faith and that you hope in by that same faith. And 
the Holy Spirit has been placed inside of you as a deposit guaranteeing that this is going to happen. I am thankful when it seems like the whole world is going to cave in. The Holy Spirit says, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. You, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fret about. Your hope is not in the scene of this world, the temporal, but your hope is in the unseen and eternal promises of God. So Paul is reminding the church. He's saying, look, have joy. Be joyful in hope. Have joy because of the hope that you have because of faith in Christ. Through the hope received by faith. And then through the hope to be revealed in the future. Acts chapter 1, verse 10. It says this, They were looking intently up into the sky as He was going. This is here at the ascension of Christ. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen Him go into heaven. What a glorious promise. He's not going to leave us down here forever. That He is going to return at some point in time. And that is the hope that is to be revealed in the future. We hold on to this hope. Anybody seen Christ return yet? No. And if you say that you have, the Bible says don't listen to those people. You'll know. You'll know. We have the hope of that promise that one day He is going to set foot on the Mount of Olives and the earth is going to quake and He is going to set the record straight once and for all and He is going to rule and reign. So we long for that and we look for that. We look for that to be revealed. And so there is that hope of the things that will be revealed in the future. That we see here even in Acts chapter 1, the angels remind the believers who were standing there watching Christ ascend into heaven, don't worry. Don't fret. You have hope. He's going to come back just as He's leaving. He's coming back in the same way. We as believers have that internal hope from the Holy Spirit, our guaranteed deposit, who is reminding us all the time, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Keep pressing on. Keep focusing on Christ. This is just temporary. These trials are light and they're momentary. And they're nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in Christ. So we see that if we have that outlook, we will walk in that joyful hope, that joy of our salvation when that salvation will be complete in Christ for all eternity. Our unseen guarantee of the return of Christ. We know that He's coming back because He said He was going to. We know over and over again we can look at the Word of God. And the Word of God guarantees us that hope over and over again. Hebrews chapter 9. The author of Hebrews says this, verse 27. He says, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Right? He says it's a given. Man is going to die once. And after that, it's going to be a judgment. And usually we stop there, but let's read the rest of this. He says, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. He says in these two verses that the return of Christ is just as guaranteed as the fact that we're all going to die and stand before God in judgment. That's what the context of this is telling us, that we have a future hope that ought to bring us joy as we wait for our final redemption where Christ 
comes and redeems us and glorifies us in Himself. And so we have to ask the question, are we walking in that joy right now as Christian? Is that, as Christians? Is that a virtue in our lives as men of God? Are we experiencing and walking in the joyful hope that we have by faith in Jesus Christ? Are you enjoying that hope? Are you? Are you watching the news and oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and oh, the country's deteriorated? It is. But my hope is not in this country. My hope is not in this culture. My hope is not in our government whether our government be corrupt or whether our government be godly. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Just as the old hymn says, that's the only thing, that's the only joyful hope that we can have. And without that, where would we be? Where would we be? We would turn on the news and be fretting. We would turn on the news and be afraid. We would turn on the news and worry. I can turn on the news and you know what I do? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Because I can promise you this, the only hope that we have is Christ. Paul is reminding them of this. Be joyful in hope. He goes on, second part of verse 12. He says, be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. So we've seen enthusiasm in service as a virtue. Joy in salvation as a virtue. And then patience in suffering. Patience in affliction. That's almost a guarantee of something. What? Suffering. The thing the American church doesn't want to talk about. Again, let me remind you, there is no glory unless there is first a cross. There is no glory unless there is first a cross. You must suffer as believers. In fact, Jesus said this, in this life there will be all kinds of trouble. There'll be all kinds of affliction. There'll be all kinds of suffering. There will be all kinds of sorrow. But Paul is encouraging us here to be patient in those afflictions. We go to the psalmist in Psalm 40. And we see his patience. In Psalm 40, verse 1, he said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. And He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The key to that was what? The first verse. I waited patiently for the Lord. The psalmist understood that. Waiting patiently for His deliverance. How many of you understand? We are guaranteed deliverance by Christ from this world and from sin and the things and the wickedness of this world. We are guaranteed. But we wait for it because it's not happening yet. Paul is saying, wait patiently in affliction. Demonstrate that patience as you suffer. Why? Because there's a reason for it, isn't there? 2 Corinthians tells us this in chapter 4, verse 16. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, 
but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He says, be patient in your affliction. Thomas Watson said this, he said, afflictions add to the saints' glory. The more the diamond is cut, the more it sparkles. The heavier the saints' cross is, the heavier will be their crown. There is a purpose and there is a point to the afflictions that we suffer as believers. And Paul is saying, be patient. Why is he saying, be patient? Well, first of all, he's telling us by embracing the purpose of these sufferings, we can view them with a patient attitude. Right? How many of you know that there is a purpose in every affliction that we face as believers? There's a purpose. James says one of those purposes is to mature our faith. James chapter 1, verse 2, he says this about trials. Pay attention to what he says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. What? That just doesn't fit in the American church today, does it? Pray that God will make it quick and relieve me as soon as possible. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. He tells us why. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. We covered this doctrine, didn't we? A true believer will persevere till the end. There will be no one who jumps ship and then runs off and, and you can't say that they were a Christian and then they became an unchristian. Scripture is very clear. They went out from us because they were not of us. They never were of us. He's saying this, as believers, we're going to face these trials because it's going to build in us the perseverance that we must have. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Watch what happens next. Perseverance must, must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So by embracing suffering's purpose, we can be patient in our sufferings, can't we? To know this, that there's no accidental affliction. Any of you guys still believe God's sovereign? And nothing happens unless He causes it or allows it? Here's the thing, when He causes and or allows affliction and suffering into our life, Paul says be patient in your affliction. Embrace the purpose of the suffering. Oh, you don't have to like the suffering. Who likes suffering? But embrace the purpose of the suffering. Aren't you thankful that Jesus had a purpose in His suffering? Anyone still listening? Aren't you thankful that Jesus had a purpose in His suffering? Aren't you thankful that the apostles who suffered, they suffered on purpose, with purpose? Why? It is maturing our faith. It gives us great hope, great reason to be patient. It's maturing our faith. That's purpose number one. Purpose number two is to bring glory to our Heavenly Father in the midst of those sufferings. Doesn't the world look at us when we're suffering? If we're suffering patiently, trusting in God, don't they just scratch their head in bewilderment and amazement? Man, how are you handling this like this? Oh, because I believe the Word of God and I believe what the Word of God says. You ever read the story of Job? Let me take you to my friend Job and, and teach you a little about suffering and affliction. And how God, watch this, are you listening? 
allowed every single affliction that Job went through to happen. For what? Two reasons. To mature Job's faith and to glorify God. And let me tell you this. Mission was accomplished. Go read the entire account of Job. In the end, Job was there in awe of God and His majesty. And God was glorified in that situation. And Job's faith endured the test and he persevered. And his faith grew because of his affliction. You know why the American church is so weak in faith? They run from affliction. They avoid affliction. They don't want to suffer. They're spoiled. And they're spoiled rotten. Don't be those semi-pseudo-American believers. Be true, authentic, biblical believers who realize we're going to face affliction. Let's face affliction like Scripture says. Be patient. Be patient in your sufferings, in your affliction. Again, just as Thomas Watson said, the more the diamond is cut, the more it sparkles. The more you shine for the glory of God to bring honor and praise to Him. So we see we demonstrate patience in our suffering by embracing our sufferings for the purpose that God is desiring to achieve. But secondly, by resting in God's providence in the midst of our affliction. By resting in His providence. The psalmist says in Psalm 56, verse 3, When I am afraid, I will trust in You. In God, whose word I praise, I in God, excuse me, I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? In the middle of the affliction of the psalmist there, he was trusting in God. He was putting himself aside and he was resting in God's providence. We as believers must learn to rest in God's providence. You're going to be patient patient in affliction. Uh, there must be an extreme trust in God's sovereign plan. So look at everything that happens and say, just like this. It happened for a reason. I do not know that reason. But I do know intimately the one who knows exactly why it happened. Nevertheless, I'm going to praise Him in the midst of this affliction, in the midst of this storm, because He is worthy of all of my praise. It is that extreme trust in His sovereign plan. And it's also an excellent testimony to others when we are patient in our affliction. It's an excellent testimony to others of God's faithfulness. Any Anyone here ever been through a trial? Anyone here ever been through a trial that lasted forever? No. no. Because they passed, don't they? They, they accomplished their objective and then they passed. There may be that person who is a believer who endures a trial their whole life, but I can promise you this, that trial never ends in death. Jesus promised this. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me shall never die. So even if we were to lose our mortal lives because of whatever affliction or trial that we face, Glory be to God the Father because He has already made sovereign provision for us for all eternity through Jesus Christ our Savior. So it's an excellent testimony to others when we face, face affliction with patience. Right? Because what does the world want? They want microwave everything. Right? Instant gratification. 
Right? The, the guy who memorizes one scripture verse wants to be the pastor the next week. Right? We want instant gratification. This is what we want. We, we, we have our whole lives, especially the younger ones in the room. You have been hungry. You pull in a drive through in three minutes. You have a meal in a sack. So you don't want any suffering to last any amount of time. And you're sure not going to be patient. But if we will learn patience in the midst of our suffering, as Paul is telling the church to do here, others will take note of that. Unbelievers will notice that. Something is different about the way this man is handling this crisis because I've been in that same crisis and I did not handle it the same. They will. This is what Scripture says. They will inquire of the hope that you have. They're going to see. In the midst of their darkest moment, they still have hope. They're going to say, man, how can you just approach this so nonchalantly and be so patient in the midst of this? You just got a bad report from the doctor. Yeah, but it didn't surprise my father. It didn't surprise Jesus, my Savior. In fact, if this is to end in death for me, He has already taken care of that. They'll look at you and they'll say, man, what? What a perfect opportunity then to share the Gospel because they have inquired of the hope that you have in Christ because they've seen you suffering patiently. And what we see in the American church is we suffer and we bellyache about it. And we complain. And we gripe. And we whine. Paul is saying don't be those people who complain and gripe and whine in the middle of your suffering. In the middle of your suffering... Embrace the purpose. That purpose is to mature your faith. That purpose is to bring glory to God. Rest in God's providence. Trust in Him extremely. His plan. It's sovereign. It's never going to be thwarted. It's already been laid out. Thank You, Lord, for allowing me to walk in it. Even if it's not what I would have drawn or what I would have liked, it's what You have for me. And I'm going to praise You nonetheless. Paul says be patient in affliction. We move on from 12b, the second part of 12, to the third part of 12. He says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. We've seen enthusiasm in service, joy in salvation, patience in suffering. And then I want you to see that we are to be faithful in supplication. This is in our prayer. He says, faithful in prayer. We are Faithful in our supplications and our prayers when we, watch this, write this down. Number one, when we are devoted to prayer. When we are devoted to prayer. I love that Scripture uses that word. Devoted. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says this, devote yourselves to prayer. Being watchful and thankful. Devote yourselves to prayer. Now, I don't say this to beat anyone up. I say this to examine ourselves. Would you say that your life is devoted to prayer? You might be devoted to the NFL on Sunday afternoon after church. You might be devoted to your wife. You might be devoted to your family. You might even be devoted to the Lord. That word devotion is so deep here. It is that intimate devotion. He says, be devoted to prayer. Faithful in our supplications. 
Devoted to prayer means this, we have faith in God's power. That's why we're praying. Right in the middle of our affliction. We don't give up. In the middle of our suffering, we don't quit. We get on our knees. We get on our face. We cry out to our sovereign God to work on our behalf. Why? Because He's the only hope we have of anyone working on our behalf. We cry out to Him because He's the only one who has the power to save. He's the only one who has the power to bring us out of whatever it is that we have gone into. Devoted to prayer. Faith in God's power. Faith in God's plan. Isn't that what devotion to prayer really says? That I have faith in God and His power? That I have faith in His plan. If you're, if you're praying right, that's what you're saying when you pray. We go all the way back to the garden. Jesus, I mean, back to Jesus, and He's praying, and His disciples come to Him. And how should we pray? What do we do? Jesus says we ought to pray like this. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Right? Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Right? Faith in His plan. Faith in His power. Are you devoted to prayer? He says be devoted to prayer. Faithful in prayer. Faithful in supplications. Faith in God's power as we pray. Faith in God's plan. Your will be done. We see Jesus pray that in the garden, don't we? Your will be done. I would that this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, Thy will be done. When we are devoted to prayer, that's how we're going to pray. Because we are going to pray, God, Your will be done. We have faith in Your plan over our feelings, over our desires, our dreams, our goals, our ideas. We are devoted to prayer because we have faith in God's plan and God's power. We are faithful in supplication when we are devoted to prayer, but also when we're dependent in prayer. Dependent in prayer. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. How many things? Everything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Present everything in prayer to God. Why is that so important? Doesn't that really show? It really does. But doesn't it really show that we're depending upon God? I tell people all the time, if God, they ask me this question, if God's sovereign, everything's already, already going to happen, and He's in control of all that stuff, why pray? Well, because He told us to. And because in our prayers, what we're doing is we are aligning with His will. And we are showing that we are dependent not upon ourselves. We're dependent not upon what we see, not upon what we can touch in this world. We are dependent upon Him. And dependency upon God, watch this, is a sign of humility. You want to find out if you're being humbled? How much are you praying? Because a humble man will be a praying man. Why? Because he knows this. I can't accomplish anything on my own other than sin. I can't do anything on my own worth anything. In fact, John chapter 15, didn't Jesus say that? Apart from me, you can do nothing. So true humility is that person who is devoted and dependent in prayer. Depending upon God in everything, every situation. I know what we do, right? We most of the time only depend upon God when the situation seems like it's out of our control. And you've done pretty good at controlling things up until this point, haven't you? If you would have stayed in control of things, I promise you, you would have controlled your things all the way to hell. I'm thankful. 
I've been rescued. I've been rescued by a sovereign, powerful God who is able to do what? Abundantly more than I could ever even ask or imagine. This is a challenge to us. Why don't we live in that devotion and that dependency in prayer? Just totally relying on Him and humility. Because we can't do a thing. It is a sign of true humility. It's a sign of trust when we are dependent in prayer. Paul says be faithful in prayer. Devoted. Dependent upon God. That's what prayer really signifies. Many people think prayer is to change God's mind. (laughs) I want to help all of you. You're not going to change God's mind. Okay? Everybody get that? Prayer is to change your mind so that your mind is in a line with God's mind and His plan and His providence. True humility will be devoted, dependent, in prayer, it will be a virtue. Faithful in prayer. So ask yourself, am I faithful in prayer? If you're not, can I give you a few hacks? You want some hacks to help you in your prayer life? You guys all have some type of handheld electronic device that has an alarm on it. Huh? The Muslims sound alarms every day to remind them to pray. We could learn something from them. They're praying to a false god. How about you set yourself a few reminders throughout the day to just remind you to, hey, knucklehead, stop and depend on God before you mess something up. Stop and trust Him afresh and anew this moment of this day before you do something stupid. Right? What what would happen if just the men in this room devoted themselves to prayer? The men in this room devoted themselves to prayer, dependent upon prayer, depending upon God in everything as we just saw the Scripture say. Being anxious about nothing. Right? If the whole world ends tomorrow, I don't have to worry about it. Why? Because I sought the Lord in prayer tonight. You know what? His will be done. Hallowed be His name. Right? Where would we be? The enemy loves keep us from being faithful in prayer, doesn't he? He tries to make us. Men, listen to me. Don't let him make you so busy that you're not devoted to praying. I can tell you this. I'm in ministry. My whole life is ministry. You know what he likes to do? He likes to get me so busy with ministry that I'm not devoted to prayer. You know what? A minister who does not pray is an ineffective minister. I can assure you of that. Um, I've been there where I was so busy that I wasn't taking the time to pray. I am thankful that God has shown me the importance of humbling ourselves and just depending upon Him. Saying, God, I really have nothing to offer You. I pray that Your will be done. I pray that You walk me into Your will by Your Holy Spirit that You would be glorified. Whatever it is that's going on in this day that You've given me, may it all be done for Your glory. Thank You, Lord, for another one. Let me live it for You. Be devoted. As Paul said in verse 12, the third part, faithful in prayer. Are you? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to say this. As a born-again believing man, 
become devoted in prayer. Pray for your family. Pray for your wives. Pray for your children. Pray for the things that are going on in their life. Don't pray for what you want. Seek the Lord's will and pray that His will be done in your prayer. Moving on. We've seen enthusiasm and service, joy and salvation, patience and suffering, faithful and supplication. And then we see this, verse 13, the first part where we will end tonight. He says, share with God's people who are in need. Which moves us to the fifth thing, obedient and sharing. Obedient and sharing. What does that look like? We're obedient and sharing when, watch this, we recognize God's ownership of all of our possessions. We've done this before. No need to do it again. But I remind you of this. Nothing that you have do you own. It is all on loan from the One who owns everything. Everything that you have is because of the grace of God. He has allowed you to be a steward over His things. Many people don't give to the needs of others because they think that it's theirs. When we as Christians realize none of this is ours, not a single dime belongs to me. Not a penny belongs to me. It's all grace. Everything that I have is God's. He's graciously entrusted it to me. That is it. So we have to recognize God's ownership of all of our possessions if we're going to be obedient in sharing. The world doesn't understand this. That's why they're stingy. That's why they're selfish. We as believers cannot be that way. Why? He just told us. Right? He spent 11 chapters telling us how glorious our God is in saving us and says because He saved you, now, here's some things you need to do in your life because of what He's done for you. And one of those things is to be obedient in sharing. This is giving. Nobody likes to talk about, right? That preacher just wants our money. I don't get your money. You can ask anybody in leadership in this church, I never see your money. I don't know what you give. I never will know what you give. Don't care what you give. I know this, everything that I own belongs to God, and when He requires it of me, it is His to take from me to give to someone else who is in need. All glory to Him. So we must be obedient in sharing what God has allowed us to be stewards over because it's all grace. And it's all God's anyways. We have to understand that. The American church has forgotten this. Psalm 24, verse 1. I'm reminded of this psalm all the time. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. Everything belongs to Him. So when He requires it of us, for you to not give it to the needs of others, are you listening? Pay attention to me. You steal from God. That's what Malachi calls it. You steal from God. Now, you say, well, that's kind of harsh. I didn't write it. He did. God says this. He says in Malachi, how, how do we rob God? He says, in your tithes, in your offerings. You rob God 
from not giving to those who are in need. Right? Because the way things are designed, we give to the church. The church then distributes to those who are in need. I can tell you this. You can have confidence of knowing this. This church gives away more money than they keep. As long as I'm the pastor, I'm going to make sure that it stays that way. Okay? The money that we bring in is to be given away to the gospel ministry either here in this country that we live in or around the world. We are going to give where there is a need for the gospel. We're going to give for those who are in need. Maybe someone needs food. We're going to take care of them. You give here at Key Life Fellowship. You give to those who are in need. There are people who come by all the time. You know what they need? They need a meal. They need a place to stay. You know what they get? They get a meal and they get a place to stay. Why? Because you've been faithful to give to those who are in need, just as the Lord says to do. You must continue to be faithful in the area of being obedient in sharing with others. We do that by recognizing God owns it all. If you're stingy and you call yourself a believer, let me help you tonight. Let me give you some truth that will set you free from your stinginess. Number one, I hope you're convicted. Number two, I hope you confess and you repent of that tonight. Why? Because He's commanding it to the church that we are obedient in sharing. It's not yours. First step in letting it go is realizing it's not yours. Right? What if my friend let me borrow his shotgun to go duck hunt? When he came to pick it up, I said, no, I'm not going to give it back to you. But it's my shotgun. Well, it was until you loaned it to me. It's mine now. How would that go? Probably not good when the cops showed up. Right? So the thing is, it's his shotgun. God has entrusted it to me. It doesn't belong to me. So when He requires that I give it back, I must give it back. So when we understand that God owns everything, every possession that we have is His, when He says, okay, now I want you to take that thing that I've blessed you with, you've enjoyed it, now I want you to give this. Whether that be a dollar, whether that be your time, your talent, maybe some other resource that you have, God says give that to someone else who's in need. That's what Paul's talking about. Obediently sharing with others. Recognizing God's ownership of all your possessions. Step one in that. It doesn't belong to you anyways. Step two, releasing your thought ownership for the benefit of others. Remember that when you release that thought ownership, it's going to benefit that person who God actually wants to bless. And why does God want to bless that person? So that they can see God. Lord, use me for your glory in every area except giving. No, in everything. Whether word or deed. Do it all. Right? Do it all for His glory. Or whatever it is that you require. Someone has a need. And I have resources. Those resources have come from you so that I can help meet their need. Luke 6.31 says, Do to others as you would have them do to you. What about you? If you were hungry, did you hope that someone would feed you? If you needed a coat or blanket when it was cold, did you hope that someone would cover you up? Sure you would. You know what Jesus told us to do? How we're supposed to live our lives? To do to others as we would have them do to us. Now you wouldn't like anyone to walk past you. Oh, I hope it all works out for you. No, it's not gonna, it's not gonna help that person, is it? No, when a person comes to me and says, hey man, I'm hungry. Okay. Man, i got a few minutes. Let's go up to Whataburger and let's get you a hamburger. 
If they say, no, I'd rather have the cash. Well, I know all they want is cash. You're not hungry. You're trying to rip me off. You hungry? Yeah, I'm hungry. Let's get your hamburger. But we must learn that everything is His. And when we get that, we can then release our thought ownership so that other people will benefit. To become a giver for the glory of God. That's what Paul is wanting the church to do. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Right? When, when that lost person tells his buddy, man, I don't know about these people. Man, they paid my rent. I just went to talk to these people at this church and you know, I lost my job and I didn't know how I was going to make it and I really didn't know what to do. And I just threw up some prayer and the next thing you know, man, this church is paying my rent. Isn't that a picture of what Paul is telling us here? Isn't it what we should do as New Testament believers to help those people out who are in need, obedient in our sharing? I can tell you this, if you've been blessed financially, you listening? You haven't been blessed if you're a believer here today. You haven't been blessed financially so that you can stockpile it here on this earth. You've been blessed financially so that you can give to others for the glory of God, so that you can store up treasures in heaven just as Jesus told you to do. Now, now wait a second. That doesn't seem just right, does it? He says, I'm going to loan you these things. They're yours. They belong to me. You invest them well. You invest them in my kingdom and for my glory. And what I'm going to do with them, I'm going to multiply them and they will be an inheritance waiting for you in glory. Now, anybody in here who has any kind of business savvy at all, if, if someone offered you that deal in a worldly sense today, would you take it? Hey, no investment on your behalf, but all gains go back to you. I'll front all of the resources. Who would take that offer as a businessman? Think how gracious God has been in this. And we're still selfish and stingy many times in our approach to giving. God said, it's all mine. I'm going to let you use it. But I want you to give it away so that I can be praised. And when they see your good deeds that are going to glorify me in heaven and in you doing what you're supposed to do, I am going to store up treasures in heaven for you to enjoy with me for all eternity. And yet we don't want to give. You know why we don't want to give? Because we see giving as an obligation instead of as a privilege. It is a privilege to be able to give back to the one who has given so much to us that we didn't deserve. So release your thought ownership of your things for the benefit of others. And in doing that, you bring glory to God. You bring glory to God. Not only are you a giver for God's glory in that instance, you're a giver for the gain of others. Other people, other human beings benefit from your willingness to be obedient. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, No one should seek his own good, but the good of others. What a missing element in Christianity today. We know this. We know that He is talking about our testimony and how it can affect other people. This is the general rule as Christians that none of us should seek our own good. But shouldn't we be looking out for others? How many of you can remember far, back, far enough back when there were people in our 
society and our culture really live like that. Remember when someone was broken down on the side of the road, they would stop and help them. When they were, there was a woman carrying her groceries out to her car with five kids, they would help load her groceries into her car. Remember those days when we understood these principles of living our lives not for the benefit of us, but for the benefit of others, the good of others. Now what we like to do is gripe about America, but yet we don't contribute to changing what we see. We just gripe about it. I remember the way it used to be. You sit there and you gripe in the interest of that grocery store. man would hold the door for a woman. Six women walk past you while you're griping and you don't open the door for any of them because you were too busy griping. We have to get back to what the Bible teaches about this. Our lives are to be lived for the glory of God and the good of others. That is Christianity. Please understand that. Please don't complicate that. That is what Paul is telling us here. To obediently share with others. Our time, our talent, our resources. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands. He's talking to the thief who's been redeemed. He says, now don't steal anymore, but work. Then he goes on and he says something interesting. Why does he work with his own hands? That he may have something to share with those in need. That he may have something to share with them. You thought you were working for a big retirement check. As believers, you've been blessed to share with those who are in need. To share with those who are in need. Why? Because it brings glory to God and it benefits those who you give to. You can tell them just like this when they say, man, why would you do that for me? I've had this happen many times. Why would you give that to me? You don't even know me. Oh, it's not mine. Did you steal it? No. I didn't. But my father let me have it so that at this appointed time, he could use me to give it to you. And they say, your father, Bill Gates? No. My father, the God of this universe, Jehovah, the one who is sovereignly in control of everything. And He saw your need before you ever knew you had a need. And He brought me to this place in His providence so that I could meet your need with what He's allowed me to be a steward of so that you would see that He took care of you. Would you like to know more about Him? I promise you this. No one's going to say, I don't want to hear about that. No, they're going to say, yeah, tell me more about that. What do you mean? And I began to tell them how I was once a bankrupt sinner destined for hell. And God, in His grace and His mercy, rescued me. He made me a child. And He has entrusted me with His resources so that I can point others to Him. That they may know that same Jesus who saved me. See how this works? Our Christian virtue is not so that we can be saved. It's so that others will see what a saved person really looks like. A saved person really looks like this. Enthusiasm in their service. Joy in salvation. Patience in their suffering. Faithfulness in their supplications and their prayers. And obedience in sharing with others. So again, I challenge you. I know this. This is the convicting part of Romans. This is the convicting part. This is the part where we say, okay, Here's what God's Word says. 
Well, where do I measure up with what God's Word says to a New Testament believer? Does my life look like this? Are these virtues on display in my life? Are they? I'm asking myself, and I would ask that you ask yourself those same questions. Does my life display these virtues? I can tell you this. If your life doesn't, you have one of two problems. Number one, you're not truly born again. You're not truly born again. You've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The indwelling Holy Spirit does not live in you. Or, number two, you have truly trusted Jesus. The Holy Spirit does live in you, and you are a miserable person because you are in direct disobedience to what He has commanded the people of God to do and to display in their life. And tonight, at some point in time, I would encourage you to get along with God and get on your face and to confess, God, I've been stingy if that's where it hits you. I'm not giving like I should. I'm hoarding things as if I'm going to be on this earth forever and as if they belong to me. God, show me those around me who are in need that I may help for Your glory and that I may point to Christ through helping them. Let's pray together. Father, we love You. We thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You that it's true. God, we thank You for the challenge that we've all received tonight from it. Lord, we know that we have spent great time seeing what a wonderful salvation that You paid for us to have. God, I pray that we not live a life that says that we take that for granted. But Lord, that we would live a life that displays the virtues that we've seen tonight that will bring You glory and honor and bring others into Your kingdom and open the door for us to share the Gospel. God, I pray for each man in this room tonight. I pray that if there be conviction on his part, that he rejoice in that conviction, knowing full well that he is convicted because the Holy Spirit lives in him to make him more like Christ. Lord, that tonight he would yield to that Spirit who lives inside of him, that he would be changed, that he would be molded, made into the man that you died for him to be, bringing you glory, honor, and praise, and that you would use him mightily as he seeks to display these virtues in his life through the power of your Spirit. Lord, I pray that you bless us as we go. Pray for those who were in the wreck tonight that You would put Your hand upon them, that You would work in that situation, that You would give comfort and peace and strength to those families and all. God, we just pray for those who are sick. We ask that You would minister to them. God, we just thank You again for allowing us the privilege to be children. Such a wonderful God, the one, the true, and the only God of this universe. Thank You. You have purchased us by the precious blood of Your Son. We can come to You even in this moment confidence in knowing that You are working and that You are moving. You are doing things for Your glory. Lord, let us be a part of that in all that we do and all that we say. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world.